0: Well, it has already been a spectacular morning. Um, worshiping together, um, actually it started before most of you got here. If, if you're not serving, you're missing out. We just have a great time. There's something awesome about coming in here uh, I came a little bit early. These guys are here a lot early, and, and they're practicing, and we get to worship while we're setting up chairs and serving the Lord. Uh, we said had a real sweet prayer time in the back together, and uh, I'm just excited about what God uh, is doing um, this morning and excited about who He is. Um, we got the kids staying in with us this morning. There's no children's ministry, um, so I need some help. Ezra Marlena, can you guys give me a hand? I need you guys to hand these out. These are some fill-ins for the kids. Um, so anybody that can write, you need to grab one of these. Um, those of you that have been here, you know, the drill, um, there's candy. No, Josh, you can't have one. Oh, right, right. Okay. But no candy. If you, if you fill that in and bring it to me after the service, I'm going to hide out back over here where Mr. Matt is at. And if you bring that to me, I will give you candy, um, which is pretty cool to get candy at church. I think, um, if, if you can't, Spell yet? If that's a little too much for you, I want you to draw me a picture of something from the sermon. You can draw me any kind of picture from the sermon. Uh, I'll grab you a candy. Did everybody get one? Thank you, Marlena. Did you want one? Awesome. All right. Well, kids, it is so good to have you in with us this morning. I think it's a really cool morning to have you guys in. You need one? Boy, oh boy. Thought i printed way too many. I have one left. Awesome. Awesome. We are growing the church the old fashioned way. Um, it, is, it is cool to have you guys in here. I love how God works this out because we're going to talk about what it means to be a child today. Um, any of you guys have experience with that? Any, uh, any of you kids know what it means to be the child of a father? I think all of us do, right? If we're here, um, we, we probably had a father. Um, and yet, We all have really different experiences of what that means to have a father, don't we? Some of you would say, being being a child of a father means that I'm loved, that I'm cherished, that I'm protected, that I'm cared for. Some people, their experience of having a father means that I've been abandoned. I've been left. Some people, their experience of having a father means that I've had my trust broken. Fatherhood, like the rest of this world, has been corrupted. It's been twisted broken by sin. Even those who have the best fathers, they should be so grateful for that amazing gift, and yet they know. They still know that sting of being disappointed by their father at some level. Because of sin in this world, none of us has had a perfect father. You guys on the fill-ins already? None of us have had a perfect father. Because of sin, being the child of a father... Uh, means radically different things to all of us. And that's why it's so important as we come to a, a text like we have this morning here. God calls Israel his firstborn son. It's the first time he says that. And it would just blow them away to hear that. Wow. And it's so important as we come with our different experiences that we kind of hold that in an open hand. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a child? We are experiential creatures, right? That's why we have sayings like um, seeing is believing. You'll never know till you walk a mile in their shoes. That's, that's our highest level of, of judging what is true and right uh, is, is by the things that we've seen, we've touched, we've tasted, we've smelled it, we know it. And yet there's something even more true. Do you realize that? There's something more accurate, more trustworthy than even your personal experiences. And it's God's word. It's right here. Our experiences are narrow. We only see a small piece of the picture. Our our experiences are, are skewed. We easily misinterpret what has happened to us. And most importantly, our experiences are twisted by sin and corruption in this world. God's truth is the truth written down for us, put into black and white and we have to constantly fight. We, our tendency is to read God's Word and to interpret it by our experiences, and we need to flip that. We need to take our experiences and interpret them by God's Word. God's Word is true. What does that say about what I've experienced? That's hard. That's not an easy thing as we read God's Word to consistently be coming back and setting our standard of truth, not on our own experiences, not on what we think, but on what God says. That's what I want us to do as we come to Exodus 4. We're going to look at verses 18 all the way down to 31. And this passage, as I said, God says for the first time that Israel is his firstborn son. It's this amazing statement. And instead of taking what we know a father to be and projecting that onto God, saying, okay, God's a father. This is my experience of father. That must be God. We need to go the other way and say, this is who God is. This is what it means to have a father. Maybe our experience matches up to that a little bit. Maybe not at all. But we need, to, we need to let God's truth be the standard. So let's go to God's word. And the question we want to ask this morning is this question. What does it mean to be a child of God? So open your Bibles with me. Exodus chapter 4, if you haven't already. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand um, One of our ushers will get you when we want you to have God's word open on your lap. Uh, I I couldn't help but eavesdrop uh, this week as Beth was listening to one of the ladies' studies that they're doing, Jen Wilkins, and uh, her comment was that uh, the the false teacher's hope is that you don't know specifically what's in the Bible. They're okay if you know generally what's in the Bible, but if you don't know it specifically, you're easily led astray. And uh, that's so true. Is it's not exactly what Satan did to Adam and Eve. Didn't God say? And he misquotes Scripture and he begins to lead them on this path. I want you to be able to see what God says specifically, clearly, um, that we're tracking that together uh, and that you're able to say, hey, wait a second, John, that's not what it says. You, you missed it. You got it wrong. I, I will get it wrong. If, if nobody ever comes up to me and says, hey, John, um, you were wrong here. Um, then We got a problem as a church because I'm not infallible. So we welcome that. We want to grow together in understanding God's truth. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, we began following uh, Moses and, and identifying with him. So chapter three, we looked at God's call on Moses. He calls him to this mission. Moses, I want you to go and proclaim my freedom, my rescue to Israel. And so we asked, what does it mean that God has called us to go to proclaim his gospel, his message of freedom. Last week, you looked at chapter 4, at Moses making these excuses before God and how, how patiently God corrects him and how abundantly God responds to those excuses. And we ask the question, what are our excuses? What are the things that hold us back and how has God answered them? These verses kind of wrap up this section of the call of Moses And it's God teaching Moses, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be my child. See, if Moses is going to lead the people of Israel and teach them about what it means to be the people of God, then Moses needs to know that himself. He needs to be walking in that. Elders, did you catch that? We're sheep first. We need to know what it means to be children of God before we can even begin to lead the children of God. So let's take this one section at a time. Chapter 4, I'm starting at verse 18. We're going to go down to verse 23. And what we, what we need to see from this passage is that a child of God ought to know the love of God. A child of God ought to know the love of God. It says this, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I, will say t- and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's interesting, the first time that, this is the first thing that, uh, that Moses does after hearing from God, is he goes and asks Jethro for his permission. I just want to camp on that for a second. It's kind of a a detour, but I think it's significant. We live in a society where everyone just wants to go their own way. I'm going to figure out what's right. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm I'm just going to do my thing. And and God is often used as the fall guy, right? Not not that we're carefully reading God's word and saying, no, I'm obeying a, a clear command from God. But we say things like, God wants me to do this. God told me to do that. And then we charge off on our own. Listen, Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Wow. Moses actually did hear from God, clearly and directly. And as a grown and married man, he still goes back to his father-in-law and says, Jethro, will you give me your blessing? What do you think about this? I want to go back to Egypt. That takes humility. That's what wisdom looks like. That's significant. I assume that he told Jethro more than what's said here. I think this is just a summary. Um, and, and the phrase, to see if they're still alive, um, that's kind of a, 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 a colloquialism, but that's not a good word for kids to understand. Um, that's just a way of speaking. It's just to check on them. I'm going to go and see how they are. But this picks up again on, on some neat literary features that we were following earlier. Uh, kids, do you remember last time you were in, we looked at, at chapter 2, verse 11. And it said that Moses went out to his people to see their burdens. Do you remember that? And it was significant that that he was beginning to identify with his people. He had grown up in the palace with the Egyptians. And and finally in chapter two, it says, he went out to see his people. And then that word see, we talked a lot about that. It's a powerful word. It speaks of of seeing leading to action. It, it It was investigating in order to do something. And so as Moses went out, to see his people, what happened? What did he do the first time? Do you remember? He killed the Egyptian slave driver. Moses didn't wait for God. He didn't trust in God's time. He didn't have God's power with him, sending him. He acted on his own. And then at the end of chapter two, that word comes up again, but it's no longer Moses who saw his people. Who was it that saw his people? It was God. God saw. And now, oh boy, this is, gonna, this is building anticipation. It's coming. What's, what's God going to do? And that leads directly then into the story of the burning bush and God preparing Moses. So here in chapter 4, verse 18, once again, uh, that same language is used. Moses is identifying with his people. That, that word, my brothers here, that's the same word as used for my people back in 211 and the word see here's the same word i think he's he's pointing us back hey remember the first time that moses saw his people and then acted now he's coming back but this time he's been prepared by god sent by god uh, and and then uh, verse 20 he takes his wife and his sons and the staff of god in his hands last week we looked at the staff And what that meant, representing God's absolute power, his power over sin and darkness and death and evil. This time God is with him. The great I am is sending him, empowering him. Together we're going to go and see my people. Now we get to the meat of these verses. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. It's hard to see these things, and we're so familiar with this story. Um, But think about it. The burning bush, who were the signs and miracles for? They were for Israel, right? Moses says, when I go there and I tell them the the great I am has sent me, they won't believe me. And so the Lord said, well, do these signs before Israel, and then they will believe you. Now God is saying, we're not going to stop there. Do these signs not only before Israel, but before Pharaoh as well. Kids, do you remember the title of our series through Exodus? Does anybody know what it is? I think it might have been behind me earlier. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Do you know why? Because the book of Exodus is the Lord introducing himself. It's God saying, Hi, I'm Yahweh, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that's been covenanting with his people through the book of Genesis. Let me introduce myself. Let me show you who I am. Next week, as we get into chapter five, um, Moses, or sorry, Pharaoh says to Moses, Pah, who is the Lord that I should worship him? Those are those are That's a bad idea, Pharaoh. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And then the plagues come pouring down and time and time again, God says that I will do these things so that they may know that I am the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to show you who I am, Pharaoh. And it's not going to be pretty. He comes in power to rescue his people. So right here in chapter 4, is God saying, I'm going to show you who I am, not not only to Israel, but also to Egypt. I'm going to display my greatness, even for my enemies to see and be terrified. And look at this. God tells Moses, do the miracles I gave you, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will not let the people go. I mean, what if your dad did that to you guys? It's go, go and wash the bathroom, but I'm going to keep throwing mud in it so that it doesn't ever come clean. Right? God, what are you doing? Why are you hardening Pharaoh's heart? God, isn't, isn't God's desire to set his people free? Isn't that what he's trying to do? No, it's not all he's trying to do. He's trying to introduce himself. He's trying to show who he is. Kids, do you think I'm strong? Come on, help me out. Help me out. Who thinks I'm I'm pretty strong? Come on, come on. Mr. Terry thinks I'm strong. All right. I'm going to prove how strong I am. I'm going to prove how strong I am by arm wrestling. All right? And I'm going to prove, who should I arm wrestle? I'm going to prove how strong I am by arm wrestling Hannah. Hannah, come here. Ready? We're going to arm wrestle. I'm going to show how strong I am. I beat Hannah. Aren't I strong? Aren't you impressed? Come on. That's not amazing? Now, if I wanted to show how strong I was, I'd have to maybe arm wrestle Hannah's daddy or Hannah's grandpa. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) We're going to just pretend that I could beat them. right? The stronger the person I beat, the more you see my strength, the more impressed you are with me. Right? God says... I'm going to show how strong I am. And I'm going to take down Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was the king of the most powerful nation in the world. Pharaoh told his people, I am a God. And they didn't argue with him. So God says, I'm going to show my strength by taking down the most powerful person in the world. But you know what? That's not enough. He's he's just little to me. I'm going to make him stronger so that when I beat him, it's more impressive. God actually makes Pharaoh stronger to show how strong he is. It's amazing. But if you think about it, if Moses had got in and just done the first sign, think about it, he walks in and he, and he drops his staff down and it becomes a serpent. And, and Pharaoh goes, I hate snakes, go, fine, take the people, it's over, let them go. Well, it's done. Right? If, if Moses goes in and does the first plague, he turns the Nile into blood, and Pharaoh goes, oh, ew, blood, I hate blood. Just get out of here. Take the people. It's okay. I surrender. God would not have had the opportunity to display his power in the other nine plagues. And so God strengthens Pharaoh. God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the Israelites go. I think it's really cool. Back in, in chapter uh, 319, the Lord tells Moses, a little hint toward this already. He says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled, forced by my mighty hand. And the word mighty there is the same word that's used here for harden. God's playing both sides. He says, I'm going to come with my mighty hand and I'm going to make Pharaoh mighty and there's going to be a battle so that he can show his power. Peter Enns, who's a smart guy who wrote a book on the book of Hebrews, uh, (laughs) Exodus. Um, He says this, he says, Pharaoh is God's plaything. Pharaoh's his toy. You guys ever take your toys? My, My sister had Barbies we had G.I. Joes and we would make the G.I. Joes beat up on the Barbies, right? We'd we do what I want with them. He says, that's how God is with Pharaoh. He's playing with him. He's using him as his toy, as his tool. And we sneak a peek ahead to Exodus nine sixteen. Listen what the Lord says to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name... He's introducing himself so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I brought you here for this reason. You thought you did this king thing all on your own? No, no, no. I put you here. I did this so that I could show my greatness. I get it. This raises all kinds of questions about God's sovereignty and, and man's free will, and, and if God raised Pharaoh up for this reason, is Pharaoh still guilty of it? And, and d- does, does God just control this, or does Pharaoh have any choice in the matter? Uh, books have been written about it. And the short answer is, yeah, God is completely in control. And yes, Pharaoh is making decisions for which he is accountable and for one and the same action, God is completely praiseworthy for all of the good that he works out of it, and Pharaoh is completely wicked for all of the evil that he accomplishes through it. And if you want to dig deeper into that, well, you need to come back in three weeks when we get to chapter seven. That's where we're going to dig into this and what it means that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and, and all of that. But the question here is why? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why is he displaying his power? What's the goal of all of this? And I think verse 22, God tells us why he's done it. He's made this big fight. He's making this grand display. And the message he's trying to get across is, then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Wow. First time that God's used this language What does that mean? Why doesn't he say, Israel is my servant? He says that other places. Why doesn't he say, Israel is my pet or Israel is my trophy? Wouldn't that have been true? But none of those things express exactly what God is trying to teach here. He's saying that this display is to show my deep, passionate love for my son, for my people. It's all motivated by love. I love Israel like a son, like a a firstborn son. How much? Enough to turn the Nile River into blood. Enough to fill Egypt with frogs and gnats and flies and locusts. Enough to cover the people of Egypt with boils. Enough to, to put the entire nation under darkness, to black out the sun, even to kill the firstborn children of Egypt. God says, I love them enough to totally annihilate anyone who would stand against them. The ten plagues is God screaming out, look how much I love my people. Look how much I love my people. The exodus wasn't just about coming out of Egypt either. That's that's half an exodus. The the Exodus was about God bringing his people out of Egypt and into his presence. That's half the book, is how to come into the presence of God and then bringing them into the promised land. That's where the Exodus finds its completion. I don't know what it means for you to be the child of a father in, in your experience, but to be the child of God means to be loved. It means to be loved. Loved with an unstoppable love. Loved with an immovable, immeasurable love. And the absolutely amazing thing is this. All of this stuff throughout Egypt, this huge display, God flexing his muscles, upsetting the laws of nature, stopping the sun as a show of his love. That's just the beginning. This isn't isn't the climax of it. This is just pointing forward. God said to Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son to show my love for my children. But the fullest display of God's love is that he would kill his own firstborn son to show that love, to rescue his people. Kids, somebody tell me, what does John 3.16 say? Good job. God so what? Loved. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. The death of Jesus on the cross is a display of the magnificent wonder of God's love for his people, his children. I get that there's more going on than just that, but it is that. Do you know that love? Do you understand that God of love? Do you rest in that love? I don't know about you. I grew up thinking of God as angry. I don't know where I got that idea. I had a good father. But I grew up just thinking of God as angry, as a God that scowled at me in disappointment, as a God that demanded from me more than I could ever give. And I kind of grew to hate God. I was totally wrong about God. The Bible paints this picture of God, first and foremost, who is loving toward his children. Zephaniah 3.17 is a verse that I knew for years and just couldn't understand I can't even explain it. It's, it's like all of a sudden it was a different language. I would hear it. I would know it was Scripture, and I would just kind of say, yeah, but that's not true. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. Every time I heard that verse, I just kind of hated it because it just didn't get it. It didn't make sense. It didn't match my experience as I saw it. My experience in my own head was to think that God was angry, that God was grumpy. He's a happy God. He's a happy God. Kids, you know your dads love you, right? You know that? But you know your dad's a sinner too, right? Yeah, you guys know that more than anybody else. Fathers, if you've not repented to your kids, um, you need to do that. That should be something that we do as we parent in the gospel. But your dad loves you. Sometimes, as dads, we're not real great at loving our kids the way we should. You know, we're we're called fathers because God was father first, and we're supposed to be a picture for you of who God is. That's tough. That's hard. I won't, I won't tell your answers, kids, but any, any of you, have your, has your dad ever been grumpy? Oh, Anderson kids have their hands up. Yeah. Sometimes we get grumpy. Sometimes we get angry. If you're, maybe you're, you're walking by dad's office or by the, the shop where he's working and you can hear dad going, oh, stupid car or whatever, and he's just kind of mumbling. You don't want to go in there, right? This is not a good time to hang out with dad. If you walk by and dad's singing, he's singing a song. And I, now I want to go spend time with dad. That's the dad that I want to spend time with. That's the father that our God is. He's a singing God. And, he, and he's not just singing along to himself. He is singing, exalting over his children. He's saying, I love them so much. He sings a song about it. It's crazy. Any, anybody's dad ever sung a song about him? I did. I didn't know that. Sometimes I get a little goofy. All right. God is a God of joy who rejoices over his children. He sings over them. The Lord's preparing Moses to lead the people of Israel. And first and foremost, he wants them to understand, Moses, you've got to know I'm a God of love. Israel is my son. A child of God ought to know the love of God amazing. I hope you know that. I hope you can rest in that, that that's where you go back to find your your identity. And only after that, only after making this declaration of his unstoppable love and how he's going to display it in Egypt through all of these plagues and rescuing the Israelites, then he sets out to teach Moses the next thing. A child of God ought to know or to walk in love for God. So we ought to know the love of God and then walk in love for God. What does it mean to love God? That's kind of slippery, isn't it? And I think when we talk about love for God, um, it ought to be in our hearts and our emotions. And we ought to feel love for God. But the Bible also teaches that it ought to come out in our actions how to play out in how we live. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, that last part's tricky, isn't it? Boy, you ask your child to empty the garbage and they go, fine, and they stomp over and, oh, that's That's a burdensome command. That's not an obedience out of love. God says, this is love for God that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. We do it for joy. And he teaches Moses how to do that. He teaches Moses what that looks like, showing him both that there is discipline when you disobey and there's blessing when you obey. So to walk in love for God means first to turn from sin, to turn from sin. We see this in in verses 24 to 26. Uh, Some would say the strangest and most difficult verses of the whole book of Exodus. At a lodging place along the way. So Moses is headed off. He's going to go to Egypt, and at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Or what just happened there? What is going on? Well, it seems totally random and, and confusing, but, but I, think it's, I think it's here on purpose, and I think, it's, I think it's here for our instruction. We know this, Moses had been disobeying God. The whole nation of Israel, God's chosen people, his beloved children, where did it begin? Who was the first one? Anybody know? Abraham, right? I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God went to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to put my love on you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to build your family into this great nation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make a covenant with them. Remember, we talked about a, a covenant. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I'm going to put my love on you, Abraham, but, but this is going to be the sign of my covenant, the, the mark of my promise, it's circumcision. That's, that's how they were to say, we are the people of God. For some reason, Moses had not circumcised his son. Moses was holding back from obeying God. He's holding back from obeying God. And, and so Essentially, by his actions, he's saying, God, I want all of the blessing of of being your people. I want to be part of the benefit of of being the people of God without the responsibility, without obeying. It doesn't work that way. It's not what it means to be a child of God. Notice back in verse 23, the end of the last section there. God tells Moses, say to Pharaoh, let my son go so that they may what? Serve me so that they may serve me. Now, just keep the order of things in place because that's hugely important and we often get this flipped. First, God gave his covenant to Abraham. First, he said, I will put my love on you. And then he says, obey me. First, he says that Israel is my firstborn son and I will rescue Israel. And then as a response to that love and that rescue, God says, they will serve me. They'll worship me. God doesn't love us because we obey him. We obey him because he loves us. See how we always flip that? We want to think that God will love us if we obey. We need to obey more so that God loves us more. No, God loves us. And then we ought to obey him. That's what it means to be a a child of God. But God was not rescuing his people out of Egypt out of slavery there, just to turn them loose in the wilderness, right? He could have done that. Okay, Pharaoh's beaten. The Egyptian army is dead. Good luck, guys. You're free. Go on your own. They would have died, or they would have been enslaved again. No, he's making them his own. He's bringing them into his presence. He's saying, you're going to be my people. You're going to serve me now, and I will be your master. I will be your lord. He's he's saying, I'm moving you from one slavery to another. From slavery to Egypt to slavery to God. Now, slavery to Egypt led to toil and pain and death. Slavery to God leads to blessing and joy and life. But it's still slavery. It's still being owned by someone. There's no middle ground here. This whole idea that someone can have Jesus as Savior but not have Him as Lord, it's ludicrous. It doesn't fly. The book of Exodus blows that out of the water. And what we see here is is the Lord teaching Moses that, that to be His child means to turn from sin. It's not okay to continue on living as if you're not. Mine. In Jesus' words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Right? Why do you call me Master, but you don't obey? That that doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive. God will discipline those he loves. We say this to our kids all the time choose to sin, choose to suffer. They don't like it. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Your daddy says that too, doesn't he? Yep. By his actions, Moses is saying, God, I want to receive the blessings of being your people without giving you the obedience that you require. And God says, no way. No way. It's not going to happen that way. If you choose to sin, you're choosing suffering. And so he makes Moses sick, sick to the point of death until the problem is fixed. God will discipline those he loves. when We stray from Walking with him, he will correct us. He'll, he'll bring us back. And sometimes that correction is painful. Circumcision in many ways parallels baptism. Circumcision was this symbol of, of cutting off sin and being dedicated to God. It was this statement, I'm one of God's people. I'm one of his Children, I identify with Him. I'm I'm cutting off sin, I'm putting it to death, and now I'm God's. Baptism is the same thing. It's saying that old sinful me has been put to death. That old sinful me has been put to death, buried in the grave. There's a new me, and the life I now live, I live for Him. This new life in Jesus. That's why Moses' wife says, you're a bridegroom of blood. She's drawing attention to the fact there's a sacrifice involved. There's a cost to this. That's why baptism is, is Jesus' first command to a new believer and ought to be our first act of obedience to say, I'm with Jesus. That, that old me that lived for, for sin and self, he's dead. There's a new me now. A new me that lives for Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm I'm his. It's a declaration of turning from sin. Of complete obedience. So let me ask you, what are you holding on to? Are there areas in your life where you've said, God, no, this is mine. I will follow you. I want your blessing. I want to be one of your children. You can have everything Except this. Except the shows I watch on TV. Except the way I speak to my wife. Except the, you fill in the blank. Give it to him. He calls us, turn from sin again, not to to earn our position as his, but because we are his. Because he does love us, because he has rescued us. And he disciplines his children. Sin has consequences. That doesn't exclude believers. Kids, right now, your parents discipline you. They're helping you learn what it means to be a child of a father and a mother. They're keeping you doing the right thing, and sometimes you get a spank, sometimes you get sent to your room, sometimes you lose privileges. That's, that's your parents teaching you. Sin hurts. Do what is right. As you grow up, you need to know you'll have to make those decisions. You won't have God and then your parents and then you anymore. It's going to be you and God. And God is saying to you, are you going to turn from sin? Are you going to make that decision on your own to say, you know what, one day I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to turn from sin and follow Jesus. I trust Him. Don't think you can have God and sin. Don't think that just because you grew up with a mom and dad who love Jesus, that that means you're okay, you're part of God's family. You can't continue to walk in sin and think that God will bless that. He says turn, turn from sin. So to be a child of God means to know the love of God. And then to walk in love for God, first turning from sin, but then to walk in love for God, enjoying the blessing of obedience. We talked about uh, obedience um, and his his commands are not burdensome. We begin to understand the blessing of obedience, the burdensome of God's commands drops. You'll be enjoying the blessing of obedience. Look at verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs In the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So, first we see the Lord keeping his promise, right? He promised Moses that Aaron would, would already be on his way to meet him, to help him. And so, I think we can assume verse 27, he's kind of speaking past tense. The Lord had sent Aaron. And when Aaron met Moses, he kissed him. Ew, what's that about? Well, that's just how they did it in those days. Instead of shaking hands or hugging, that's that's what they did. That was normal for them. Um, But what does it mean? It means exactly what God promised. It means uh, Aaron would be excited to see Moses. And they rejoiced together. And then I hope you caught the language used here. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron, all the words of the Lord and did all the signs that he had commanded. And they gathered together all the elders of the people. Verse 30, they, Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord that the Lord had spoken and did the signs the Lord commanded. It's complete obedience. They did everything God had said. They left nothing out. Moses and Aaron did everything that God had asked. Moses has learned his lesson. He's not holding anything back anymore. I've been down that road. That hurt. I almost died down that road. No, I'm, I'm going I'm to do everything that God had asked. And, and what happens? The people believe. They heard the Lord was coming to their rescue, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Imagine how sweet that must have been for Moses. Oh, he wanted this for so long, He's wanted this since he was a young man growing up back in Egypt. The same people who before had had said to him, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And they sent him away. Now recognizing, oh, this is God's anointed rescuer. This is God's servant come to to save us. And They bow their heads and they worship God. The, The obvious application here is, if we're obedient to speak the words that God has given us, if we're obedient to share the gospel, that we may have that blessing, that joy of seeing those that we love come to trust Christ, come to bow their heads in worship of God. What a beautiful thing that we could experience that blessing. But, but I think there's a broader blessing here as well that we can take. Just the fact that, that living God's way brings God's blessing. Living God's way brings God's blessing. It's John 15, 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, obey me so that you will have joy. There's blessing in it. God's commands are for our good. That can be hard. Sometimes God asks us to do difficult things, scary things. There can be sacrifice in that. Trust Him. Obey Him and and there will be blessing. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief, that's Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I, Jesus, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Sin promises joy, doesn't it? That's why it's tempting. That's why we do it, because we believe it. It says, this will make you happy. This will satisfy your soul. But Satan's a liar. He's a thief. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Why do we believe him? In the end, it brings nothing but suffering. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way that seems right to a man. We look at it and say, that looks good. That's what I want to do. That makes sense to me, to my heart, in my experience. But its end is the way to death. It's death. Do you trust yourself and what you think is right? Do you trust Satan, who would tell you that that sin will bring you happiness? Just go your own way. Look out for number one. Don't worry about God's commands. They're overbearing and burdensome. Or do you trust Jesus who says, no, no, follow me. These commands are for your joy, for your life. And blessing. Friends, God loves you. He's a good father. He wants joy and happiness and blessing for you. Do you believe that? It's not easy to believe always. It's not easy to see it every day. It doesn't mean your life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean everything's going to just go your way and you'll have all the money you need and, and health and everything is going to be fine. No, sometimes obedience to God leads down a difficult path. But it is the path of greatest joy. It is the path of blessing. That's why it takes faith, to trust in God. It is the path of greatest joy, both now and for eternity. God has put his love for his children on display through all the plagues of Egypt, through the death of his own son on the cross, saying, this is how much I love my children. He loves you. He wants good for you. He's a happy God who wants his joy in you. Rest in that. And then walk in love for him. Trust him. Turning from Sin and chasing after obedience, seeking it, running for it, believing that, it, that it's good. That's what it means to be a child of God. If we close, I just want to give you a minute. Can, can we just sit in that for a second? You just take a moment. The worship team is going to come uh, and, and then we'll, we'll close in song. But I want us to just stop and be reminded again that God is a God who loves you I don't know what that means in your heart, what wrong ideas you've kind of built up, but let's just take a moment in quiet and consider the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What an amazing God we have. I hope you've maybe grown a little bit in your understanding of a God who loves you. God who rejoices over his children. Maybe you need to repent of some wrong thoughts you've had of God. Maybe you're sitting there right now and thinking, I don't even know if I am his child. He loves his children, but I've been living separate from him. I've been continuing in sin. I haven't turned my back on sin at all. It's an amazing thing. God is an adopting God. He says, come on in. So what are you waiting for? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Just come. Be my child. Turn from sin. Put your hope in Christ. He he gives it freely. What an amazing God we have. I hope your your heart has just grown a little bit in your love for Him. As Corey mentioned, uh, people here would love to to pray with you. Um, We want to be a church that's praying together. I hope that happens up here. I hope we're praying for one other back there and, and, and through the potluck and through the week. But um, take advantage of that. That's not a weird thing. I don't think anyone's going to say, wow, somebody went up for prayer. Um, they're probably thinking, wow, God's at work in their heart, just like he's at work in mine. Isn't this great? Isn't that what God does when his people join together and hear from his word? I encourage you to use that.